Let us pray for the preached word. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear your word, that we, like the meek and lowly on high, may dwell with thee one day, that you would turn our attention away from the cares and worries of this world, the things that are weighing us down, and be free to worship you and glorify you wholly as you deserve. Amen. You know, and it's helpful sometimes as we work through, especially a, a, when we're working through consecutively in a, in a book of the Bible, one of the things that can happen is we can lose the forest because of the proverbial trees, right? And so it's helpful for us at times to zoom in and look very closely at something, but we also need to remember to zoom back out from time to time and kind of reorient ourselves and think about what is What's going on in the overall sequence of the narration? So here in Mark's Gospel, as we kind of zoom back out for a moment, there are three big ideas that we've been working through and we've encountered multiple times already in the, in the Gospel of Mark. The first big idea is introduced to us in the very first verse of the very first chapter, and that is that Mark is eager for us to know that Jesus is the Son of God. He is not merely a teacher, he is not merely a healer, he is not merely a rabbi, he is not merely a prophet, he is the divine son of the true and living God. Secondly, is that that through Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is being proclaimed, and the kingdom of God is being revealed to men. And, And it's through the proclamation of the word, through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that this kingdom is being revealed. And thirdly, men either believe this or they don't. Men believe by faith that these things are true and that it is by the person and work of Jesus Christ that one enters into the kingdom, or men reject that. And there's no middle way. There's no third option. It's either believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, or reject that and be lost for eternity outside of the kingdom of God. Now, all of this up to this point has been primarily located, and I use that word located intentionally, located geographically around sort of the orbit or the the banks of the Sea of Galilee. And if you just, if you want to kind of flip back, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, you can kind of orient yourself. You will probably have a map entitled something like Palestine in the time of Christ or something like that. And most that we've seen has been right around the Sea of Galilee. In fact, the last couple of chapters, we've seen the disciples go sort of back and forth across the sea. Jesus walking out on that water. The disciples storm-tossed, fearing for their life, when Jesus comes and says, Peace, be still, and the wind and the waves cease. And so far, up to this point, there's only been one interaction that's taken place in what we could say is a Gentile territory. 
And that was when Jesus was encountered by a man possessed by a spirit, an evil spirit named Legion, for we are many. Well, that's kind of zooming out. This is where we've been. And then at the same time, we need to remember that one of the the issues that the disciples and Jesus has faced is the pressing crowds. They've hardly been able to even eat or rest because of the crowds. The disciples are still grieving. The, The news of John the Baptist's murder at the hands of King Herod and the, they've encountered repeated opposition, repeated unbelief, whether that's been from Jesus' own hometown at, at the most local of levels to the highest seats of power with King Herod himself and everything in between. Well, we pick up today, there is a very important geographical cue or clue within the text. Something different happens in this small section where Jesus travels actually a fairly large distance to not only a Gentile area, but a notoriously pagan area. And what we find in the text, the title of today's sermon is Gospel Crumbs from the Lord's Table. Gospel Crumbs from the Lord's Table. What we find in the text is, is three things. One, geography is no hindrance, no barrier to the revelation of the kingdom. Geography, national boundaries, are no hindrance whatsoever to the advancement of the gospel. Secondly, ethnicity is no hindrance. Ethnicity is no barrier to the proclamation, to the receiving of the gospel of the kingdom. And then lastly, The forces of darkness are no hindrance to the advancement of the kingdom. So if you want just a three-word outline, geography, ethnicity, and darkness. Geography, ethnicity, and darkness. None of which, none of which will hinder the proclamation or the revelation of the kingdom of heaven. So with that in mind, now let's read beginning in verse 24, and I'm going to read down to verse 30. Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, 24 to 30. This This is the word of God. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet, Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Notice in the first place the significance of the geography. We're going to discover as Jesus travels intentionally 
a great distance to go to, again, not only a Gentile land, but a notoriously pagan land. That the kingdom of God is revealed even there. In fact, Jesus couldn't even be hidden, even if he wanted to be there. Jesus travels to the region of Tyre and Sidon. You'll notice, if you go back over to chapter 6 and verse 53, they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. If you look in your, in your map, Gennesaret is on sort of the northwest edge, shore of the Sea of Galilee. If you kind of draw from your finger and go northwest up, as the crow flies about 35 to 40 miles through the mountains, you will come across the city of Tyre, right on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, as the crow flies, it's about 35 miles. We don't know what route they took, but it was likely longer than that. And then it's another 25 miles up the shore to the north before you get to Sidon. So we're told he went to the region there, not to a particular city, but to that region. So what was the takeaway? He traveled a good distance here. And sometimes it's hard for us to think because, especially living in a place like Houston, 35, 40 miles doesn't seem very far at all, does it? Some of you in this room drove almost three times that far just to get here this morning. Amen? It's, but in the ancient world, traveling on foot through dusty trails, 35 to 40 miles was quite the undertaking. Why did Jesus do this? Well, we're not told explicitly. We're not told explicitly. But we do know, based on the clues that we have, is that he had already been trying to get his disciples away for somewhat of a respite and had been unsuccessful up at this point because of the crowds throughout Judea. But from Gennesaret to Tyre, he's traveled a good ways. And these two cities in particular are significant. These are not just any two Gentile cities. As you read through the Old Testament, you will find that Tyre and Sidon have a long and storied, indeed notorious, reputation. Just as one example, remember Jezebel? Ahab's wicked wife, I mean, even just the name Jezebel kind of has something that kind of goes up your spine when you hear that, right? Her father was a Sidonian king. I mean, this, this, is, this is the worst of the worst are from the Tyre and Sidon area. In fact, in Matthew 11, Jesus makes this statement. He's talking to Bethsaida, which is an Israel territory. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So what's Jesus doing? He's comparing. He's saying, look, you think you're holy because you're, you're genetic descendants of Abraham but the judgment that will come to you because you've rejected the words and works that have been done in your midst will be worse than what in your own Jewish mind is the worst, Tyre and Sidon. Now, this is also interesting because if you'll remember, last, in the last two weeks, as we've looked at the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, there was a pressing problem that came up. The Pharisees show up. And they rebuked Jesus because his disciples were failing to wash their hands. And according to the tradition of the elders, 
when you went into the marketplace, just because you might accidentally be defiled by some incidental Gentile contact, you needed to have this elaborate ceremonial washing of your hands to restore your cleanliness. Well, think of the contrast. The Pharisees were concerned about being in the marketplace where they might accidentally, by happenstance, encounter a Gentile and become defiled. Jesus travels 40-plus miles into the belly of the beast. And he's not the least bit concerned about his own defilement, is he? Because, as we saw last week, he is the true holiness of God. What touches him becomes clean, not the other way around. One commentator makes this remark. He says, Galilee, which should have been friendly territory to Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, proved hostile because of the influence of the Pharisees and the scribes. Tyre and Sidon, which should have been hostile to Christ given the history of God's people, would be much friendlier to him. Here or there, we will see, people responded far more readily in faith to Jesus than the Jews did. It remains true that some of the quickest to trust Christ are those whom we might consider the least likely to believe. Such is the wisdom of God. Some of you in this very room could testify that that was me. I was the least likely to believe. And God in his grace searched me out, found me, and saved me. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is not defined in geographic terms. It's not defined by national boundaries. It can never be limited by geography or by national borders. And what we find here is this is just a foreshadowing. This is just a foretaste of what's going to happen through the mighty advancement of the gospel and the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Think about everything that transpires after Christ's crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and the outpouring of his spirit at Pentecost. From that moment on, the gospel begins to break forth out of Jerusalem. And ultimately, as you read through the book of Acts, the risen and exalted Lord Jesus continues to proclaim, continues to reveal his kingdom through the apostolic testimony. And the gospel goes to Gentile places all over the known world and ultimately even to Rome itself. The book of Acts records the ongoing work of the Lord Jesus proclaiming this kingdom. Be encouraged that no geography, even the geography that we would consider hostile, inimic to the work of the kingdom, may very well, in God's providence, be receptive to that very same gospel. But notice in the second place, and this is, a, this is one, of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite narratives in the gospel account. Here Jesus has an interaction with what Mark describes as a Syrophoenician woman. That speaks to her ethnicity. Matthew describes her as a Canaanite, which speaks to her religious affiliation. Immediately, here he is in Tyre and Sidon. Here he is entering into a house there. He doesn't want anyone to know, and yet he could not be hidden. That phrase itself is, is, is pregnant with meaning. The kingdom of God, the very kingdom itself, cannot be hidden. And here, immediately, Mark tells us, a woman approaches Jesus and she falls down at his 
feet. Now, Matthew gives us two additional little nuggets. Number one is that Jesus doesn't initially answer her. Isn't that interesting? She approaches him, falls down at his feet, and cries out to him, and he just ignores her initially. And secondly, Matthew records that the disciples begged him to send her away. She's bothering them. Imagine the scene. They finally, I mean, if you think about the disciples, in in their minds, I mean, we had to go to the pagan area, but at least we finally got a break. The crowds have diminished somewhat. We're not being pressed in. We've had a chance to eat. We actually maybe got a little bit of of a nap or some sleep. But here's this woman. I mean, you can hear the tone in their voice. This woman. First strike against her. She's a Canaanite. She's a Syrophoenician woman. Ethnically religiously, she's as unclean as they get. And she's making a spectacle. She keeps falling down and crying out something about a daughter with a demon. Disciples beg him to send her away. And it's hard for us in our very Western post-feminism world to understand the disdain that the disciples sort of naturally would have had for her. We think, well, surely they would have been compassionate. Surely because of her tears, because of her plight. But that was not how they were conditioned culturally. She was a bother. She was a nuisance. But Jesus does speak to her. He addresses her personally. Look at verse 27. He said to her, let the children be fed first. Now by children, he's speaking of the Israelites. Let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, some commentators have have really wrestled with this and have tried to uh, take the sharp edge off of what Jesus says. And they, they said, well, he uses a diminutive term. It's like, it's not, a, it's not really a dog dog. It's like a, it's a puppy. It's a lap dog. It's a pet. And so it's not an insult. Well, that's, what's the word? Baloney. It, it's sharp on purpose. Now, he's not meaning to insult her. I think he's testing her faith. He's testing her resolve. But there were no domesticated dogs at this time. We think in terms of, and we people, you drive down the road and people got dogs running in their lap as they're driving down the road. I don't know why, but, <clears throat> but that was not the case in the ancient Near East. Dogs were wild. They were a nuisance. They were scavengers. And the Gentiles were often referred to by the Jews as dogs. It was never a kind statement. But I think Jesus is testing her faith. He knows her heart. And as a skilled master teacher, he's, he's tenderly drawing out from her the answer. And, and, and ultimately the answer to her deepest eternal need. He's not being rude, but he is refining her. R.T. France makes this observation. This is helpful. He says, may this not rather have been the outcome he intended from the start. A good teacher may sometimes aim to draw out a pupil's best insight by a deliberate challenge, which does not necessarily represent the teacher's own view, even if the phrase devil's advocate may not be quite appropriate in this context. See see what he's saying? There are times, and 
Surely, as parents, we've done this, right? Especially as your kids get older and you're having these dialogues and you, you kind of play that devil's advocate. And you, you challenge them a little bit. You push back on them and see, can they support their view? Can, can they, can they, is that defensible? And hopefully we do that with, even with each other. We, we press each other. We sharpen each other in those ways. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here by making this statement. It's not right to give the children's breads to the dogs. Oh, but listen to what she says. She answers him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Saints, think about uh, what we've looked at the last few weeks, and here are all the educated Pharisees with all their their learning, with all their knowledge, so-called, of the Scriptures, and they didn't understand the basics. Here is an untaught, uninstructed woman who's a pagan who gets it. She understands. And her answer demonstrates her strong and persevering faith. And it's such a contrast to what we've seen with those who were the religious authorities of their day. The very best and the brightest Jewish rulers were were obsessed, and that's the right word, they were obsessed with their man-made religion. They're, they're rules that had no basis in the Word of God. Now, we, we don't fault the Pharisees because they wanted to keep the law of God. That's a good thing. It is not legalism to want to keep the law of God. We ought to do that. The Pharisees are to be rightly charged because they added to the Word of God. And by adding to it, as we saw last week, they negated Jesus' own words was they set aside the commands of God in favor of their own man-made traditions. But here, this pagan woman understood something vital that the Jews had forgotten and willfully oppressed or suppressed. Now, Matthew records specifically that Jesus praises her faith. He says, O woman, Great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. Here's an irony. The Jews believed that not only were the Gentiles ethnically and morally inferior to them, but even among the Jews, the men believed that women were inferior and unable to understand the Scriptures in the same way that the men could. And Jesus turns this upside down. In fact, a traditional morning prayer of Jewish men goes like this. Blessed are you, God, our Lord, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. How's that for a morning prayer? But you know what? This woman understood something that the scribes, the Pharisees, the most learned refuse to understand and believe. So ladies, my sisters, don't don't believe the lie that says the deep things of God cannot be understood by you. To leave the deep things of the scriptures to the men. Here is a very ordinary, simple woman who understood something that the Theobros of her day didn't get. This pagan woman understood something that the very top religious boys had neglected. What does she understand specifically that they didn't understand? 
What has she understood that they had missed? Jesus came as, as the Jewish Messiah. And, and that's part of what he said, that, that the, the, it's not right for the bread, the children's bread, to be given to the dogs. Because he was the Jewish Messiah. He was the one that the Jewish scriptures had foretold and promised to the Jewish people. Ah, but she had heard something. And as I was studying this this week, I couldn't help but think about Rahab. Here's Rahab, a harlot in Canaan. And she had heard of Yahweh and heard of the might and the power of Yahweh. And she went to Yahweh's spies and said, will you save me and my family? And by faith, she was saved in her household. The Lord Jesus, dear sisters, has provided you full access to the deep things of God revealed in his word. And what she understood was that Israel, the nation of Israel, a nation under covenant promises of God, the whole purpose of God's covenant with Israel was to be a blessing not just to Israel, but to be a light to all the nations. Wasn't that the original promise given to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12? This pitiable pagan woman understood that God's blessings would spill out on the Gentiles like crumbs falling off the table. And so she understood what the Lord said to Abram in Genesis 12, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not all Jewish families. Abram, after all, was not yet a Jew. He was a pagan. Then the prophets, over and over and over again, the prophets testify to this very reality. Just as one example in Isaiah 49. We read this, and now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Do you hear what he's saying? The Lord is prophesying through Isaiah to a nation in exile and saying, it's not enough. It would be too small of a thing if I simply restored Jacob. If I simply restored my promises to Judah. It's much bigger than that. The Messiah will come. My servant will come and will bring light to all the nations, fulfilling the promise given to Abraham. This woman understood that. She had relatively little revelation given to her. She had heard something of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. She had heard something of his words and works. But she knew, compared to what the Pharisees at least thought they knew, she knew very little, but she knew this. The Jewish Messiah was to be a blessing to 
all nations. So she doesn't argue. She doesn't take it as an insult that I'm a Gentile. She says, that's very true. It's very true. Jewish Messiah has come. But the overflow of that will bless me too. I believe that. We can apply this here as well. I think about this, and and we looked at this in Sunday school this morning in Romans chapter 3. Paul is working through, he's building kind of plank upon plank upon plank the gospel of the kingdom. And, and he makes the argument. He says that, he asks the question, are the Jews any, or what advantage has the Jew? What advantage is circumcision? And he says it's much in every way because we have the oracles of God, we have the promises of God. That's a huge advantage. Well, then just a few verses later, he says, well, then are the Jews any better off? And he says, no. Now, what does he mean? Well, the Jews have a great advantage because they have the word of God. They have the promises of God. But if they reject that, they're no better off than the worst citizen of Tyre or Sidon. Well, there's an application that we must make. Young people, listen to this. If you're here today, it's it's evidence in my eyes that you're you were born into a Christian home. At least you presently have Christian parents who brought you to church who want you to understand the gospel. And I could ask you, is there an advantage to you that you're here under the means of grace, that the, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is on the lips of your, of your dad and your mom in your home, that his name is lifted up in, in prayer and thanksgiving? Is there an advantage to you? You better believe it. It's a huge advantage to you. Are you better off than the the worst of the pagans if you reject that? No, you're not any better off. You're no better off at all. In fact, I think it's a safe argument to make. You could be worse off because you should have known better. Isn't that what Jesus said? Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for those pagan cities than for you. Young people, do do not turn away from the claims of God's holy word. Do not reject the gospel preached to you. Do not reject the, the exhortations from your parents to believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, looks at this pagan Canaanite woman and commends her the only other place I can think about that has something even close to this is in Matthew 8, where there was a Roman centurion that, at which Jesus marveled at his faith. And they share a unique commendation of faith by our Lord. And in both cases, their requests are answered immediately and remotely. By remotely, I mean Jesus was not physically present to answer their prayer. He says to this woman, for this statement, basically for your statement of faith, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter, and she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. 
So we conclude from here that not only is geography not a hindrance to the revelation of the kingdom, but ethnicity is no barrier. The light of the gospel through the Messiah will come to all nations, and we could add to this, your sex also is no hindrance. Whether you're male or female, you have access to the deep things of God recorded in his word by the power of his spirit. Geography is no barrier. Ethnicity is no barrier. And, and lastly, we're going to see that the powers of darkness are no barrier. He says to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Some of you as parents know something of the desperation of this woman. Every parent has, has faced, to some degree or another, seeing their child hurting. And even just falling off a bicycle on a scraped knee can, can wound a parent, right? Uh, moms especially. But when you have a child who is desperately sick, in this case, possessed by a demon, and we've seen descriptions already through the first six chapters of what that could look like, the kind of torment that this girl would have been under and a mother who is absolutely, utterly desperate. I remember, uh, I don't remember exactly, J. Michael was probably around eight years old or so and he had surgery. And it was, I mean, as surgeries go, minor. Of course, the, you know, minor surgery is the one always done on someone else, right? But it was minor. I mean, it wasn't life-threatening. But I, I, mean, I, can, I will never forget that feeling that, that his mom and I sat and we had to see him wheeled away. And that feeling of just absolute hopeless, or not hopelessness, but helplessness as a parent. Now, we, had, we figured this was going to be relatively short, and we had a, every reason to believe this was going to be a really good outcome. But some of you know the, the anxiety, the fear, the worry that comes from sitting in a hospital room by the side of a bed of a child who's desperately sick. And, and, and we can't flatten out the contours of the scriptures and, 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 and dehumanize this woman in this way. She was desperate. And she comes to the one person she knew and believed could help her. And this is not the first time that we've seen the Lord Jesus cast out a demon. We've seen this before. But here it's different in, in two different ways. One, it, it occurs in a place that's notorious for wickedness and evil. It's one thing. It's one thing to say, yes, he casts out a demon, but he did it on his home turf. He did it in the confines of Jerusalem. It's a holy place. It's holy ground. I mean, that, it, it's, 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 not, it's not a reach to cast out a demon there. But to go, as it were, into the gates of hell, and cast out a demon. Demonstrates his power in, in, a, in an unhindered way over the forces of darkness. But it's, but it's unique in another respect. 
up until this point, when we've seen him heal someone, it's by word or touch in the immediate vicinity. Here, he never lays eyes on this girl. He never meets her. When it was Jairus' daughter, who was sick and dying, he goes into the house, and remember, he took her by the hand. He says, little girl, get up. Here, there's no touch, there's no immediate voice. This demonstrates that it was just a mere thought. A mere thought from the Son of God was sufficient to drive away the forces of darkness. And what was it like? I mean, what, what, what relief must this mother have felt for Jesus to say, the demons left your daughter? But then on the way home, and whether that's two blocks away or or several miles, we don't know how long she had to walk. But mamas, you know what she was thinking on the way home, don't you? Please let this be real. Please let this be true. And she comes home, and she finds her daughter lying in bed, and the demon's gone. What was that worship like when she knelt beside that bed? with a daughter who's whole and well. Saints, here's one of the many places in the gospel where the word of God simply encourages us simply but powerfully, behold your God. Fix your eyes upon Christ here. Look at his compassion. Look at his tenderness. Look at his power and his might and his mercy. And all of this unmerited, undeserved, gratuitous. All behind enemy lines. Saints, this is your Savior. This is your Lord. Behold your God. This is the Holy One who delights to show mercy even to the lowliest of the low, a pagan woman. I mean, as it were, we're called here to bend our knee next to hers, to bend our knee next to this Canaanite woman and offer up our worship to the true and living God. Further down the road, well after Christ had been raised from the dead, had been exalted, had been seated at the right hand of God and and had sent out his apostles into the world, Paul writes to another pagan place, to a pagan place by the name of Ephesus. And they are writing to a largely Gentile audience there. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body 
through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. See, what we see here, when Jesus takes his disciples and they travel 40, 50 miles, however long it was, to get to Tyre and Sidon, there, there's a foretaste, a foreshadowing of what Paul testified about here in Ephesians 2. Jesus went and preached peace to one who was far off, one who was outside the covenant of promises of God, conquered the forces of darkness at work, not only in the land around her, but in her and in the very body of her daughter. Saints, the lesson here is, is, is clear, I think. It does not matter your race, your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your place of birth. It doesn't matter who your parents are, who your grandparents are. None of those things matter. It doesn't matter what food you eat or what you drink. What does matter, though, what does matter is whether you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. What does matter is whether or not you believe that you, in fact, are one of the dogs who eats crumbs at the master's table. What what, what does matter is whether you place your eternal hope in him and him alone. That's what matters. Not your geography, not where you were born, not your ethnicity, not your nationality. Friends, if you're not resting in Christ as your Lord, Will you turn to him today? There's no other name given among men by which you must be saved. Believe that he alone is able and willing to forgive you of your sin and to reconcile you to the God who made you. May the Lord grant to each one here the very simple faith, but the profound faith, the powerful faith that this Canaanite woman possessed. Lord, I believe. I believe that even the crumbs from your table are more than enough to satisfy me, are more than enough to provide for me, are more than enough to heal me, are more than enough to cleanse me and make me whole. And as we meditate upon this further, I want to encourage you with with three specific points of, of application. One, first and foremost, is, is to praise and worship our God, for the mercies that we have received without merit. As you contemplate yourself, if you see yourself as anything other than a dog getting scraps at the table, then you're the wrong one and you're the wrong character in the story. Amen? If you are in Christ, it's because you have received the unmerited, unwarranted, and gratuitous favor of God. But secondly, I think there's a second point of application. We see this here into this dear mother. It's a call to persevere in prayer. It's a call to persevere in prayer. She didn't give up when first Jesus ignored her. You ever prayed and all you get from heaven is silence? When you thought, God hasn't answered me yet? Will you persevere? Will you keep calling out to him? 
They may be others around saying, look, get out of here. You're being a bother. Don't let them discourage you. Keep praying. Keep calling upon the name of the Lord. We persevere in prayer. And there's a third application here, and I think particularly for, for parents. This pagan woman gives us an excellent model for how to love our children and how to prioritize them spiritually. She pours herself out. She subjects herself to public scorn, to public ridicule for the sake of her daughter. And she knew, she understood something very important. She knew her daughter's only hope, and thus her only hope, was found in Israel's God and in his might and mercy. Listen to Matthew Henry. The vexations of children are the trouble of parents, and nothing should be more so than their being under the power of Satan. Tender parents very sensibly feel the miseries of those that are pieces of themselves. Though vexed with the devil, yet she is my daughter still. The greatest afflictions of our relations do not dissolve our obligations to them, and therefore ought not alienate our affections from them. It was the distress and trouble of her family that now brought her to Christ. Mercies to the children are mercies to the parents. Favors to ours are favors to us and are so to be accounted. Note, it is the duty of parents to pray for their children and to be earnest in prayer for them especially for their souls. I have a son, a daughter, grievously vexed with a proud will, an unclean devil, a malicious devil, led captive by him at his will. Lord, help them. This is a case more deplorable than that of a bodily possession. Bring them to Christ by faith and prayer. Who alone is able to heal them? Parents should look upon it as a great mercy to themselves to have Satan's power broken in the souls of their children. Parents, and, and I, I, as, I, as I meditate upon this, I grieve at my own lack of duty in this area. To call upon the name of the Lord on behalf of my children, and especially, and especially when I see them wrestling with their own sinful condition. Because what's the temptation as a parent? When our children sin, what's our temptation? We respond in anger. Or we respond with the law. When the greatest response is, is we can persevere in prayer and say, Lord, you alone can deliver my son. You alone can deliver my daughter. Do you have a child or do you know someone who has a child who is under the influence of their own sin? bound by their influence to the wor from the world, under the influence of, of demonic spirits, maybe not a, an actual literal possession. I don't deny that that can happen to an unbeliever. But look around. Look around at how many young people are being conditioned and, and, and led to mutilate themselves. If that's not demonic, I don't know what is. And we need to call it what it is. If you know people, if you, if you have children who are, who are under that, that grievous mind spell, 
There's only one remedy for that. We can counsel, we can give facts, we can give figures, we can do all those kinds of things, and maybe there's a place for that, but are we willing to pray and recognize this is, this is ultimately a spiritual battle that's every bit as serious as what this woman dealt with as she bowed before the Lord and cried out to him, heal my daughter. Bring the soul of that child to the feet of your Savior. Plead earnestly, repeatedly, and believingly. It will be a mercy both to you as a parent and to your son or to your daughter to see the Lord deliver them. The Son of the living God had come to proclaim and reveal the kingdom of heaven to all nations, to all nations. And neither geography nor ethnicity nor even the powers of darkness themselves were going to thwart the revelation of this kingdom. Will you believe that today? Will you rest in that? And I encourage by the, by the Spirit's help to find uh, more application than what I've highlighted today. I think there's much as we think about this in the world around us and the darkness that we see uh, to meditate upon the power and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, will you help us Will you help us to see ourselves plainly and clearly as, as your word describes us? We are, we are all fallen by, by, by birth from conception. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. We are fallen in Adam. We are, we are sorely tempted sometimes because of, of maybe the place where we live or our economic status or some other feature of our life to think that we are, are better than the worst of kinds of people that we encounter. Help us to see ourselves plainly that apart from the gracious work of Christ in us, it will be better in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for those who hear and reject the gospel of your Son. Help us to fix our eyes upon Christ. Help us to rejoice and delight in the many mercies that he's given to us undeservedly. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Work in us now to prepare us uh, to receive uh, your table, to meditate upon the body and the blood of our Lord. We ask this in his name. Amen.